privilege to be back here. And you know what? This pulpit did not look nearly as large when Brother Gary was up here in Sunday school. I think it grew from the time I left the pew down there and got up here. Well, it's good to be with you. My wife, Joyce, is here at the front. Honey, would you stand? She and I have been hanging out together for 56 years. Now, she wants you to know that she's eight years younger than I. But the Bible says train up a child in the way it should go. And it's work, folks. It really has. Uh, as you're taking your Bible and turning to John chapter 18, let me mention the items on the table. Three of the books I've written I have available. Here's a book on prophecy, 11 chapters dealing with prophetic themes, the last chapters on heaven, it's worth the price of the book. And then here's a book every young person, third grade on up ought to read, The Four Crises of Youth, Four Questions Every Young Person Has to Answer, which will determine the rest of his life. And then my autobiography came out a year ago, November, uh, 81 years on planet Earth, 58 years in evangelism, as we were singing a couple songs ago, Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. I never sing that, but what I think about as a seven-year-old boy, my brother and I, uh, I was seven, he was 11 years old, we sat on the steps of a Baptist church in Brooklyn, New York. We'd never been in anything but a Roman Catholic church. And so, they invited us in, I guess it was the prayer meeting night to that Baptist church. And the first gospel song that I ever heard was Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. And my brother and I went back to the Catholic church singing Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know. And we were rebuked soundly for that. That was not a Catholic song. All right, but uh, uh, when I was six months old, my grandmother said she walked into our third-story apartment, saw my mother take me in her arms, was about to drop me from a three-story window. My grandmother grabbed me out of my mother's arms. Had my grandmother delayed five minutes, I would have been a dead baby laying on the streets of Brooklyn, New York. At the age of four, walking the hot sidewalks of Brooklyn, picking up cigarette butts off the street and smoking them at the age of six, running around with a gang. You say, that's preposterous, a six-year-old running around with a gang. We were in the Bedford-Stuyvesant area in Brooklyn, the worst area of all of Brooklyn. And in that area, you were either in a gang or you were the object of a gang. And so my brother and I felt like it'd be better to be in the gang than to be the object of the gang. From the ages of 7 to 15, sang in the nightclub stage, radio and TV. That's all in my autobiography. Now, they would be $35 if you bought them separately. But if you buy all three of them, we'll knock $5 off the total price which would be $30. Also, we have a prayer card. Please go by, pick that up. On the back is our itinerary. And uh, then we have a flash drive. 
normally, if I were here for an extended meeting, we'd have about 45, 50 different preaching CDs on the table. But uh, obviously, for one day, we don't do that. But uh, we have a flash drive with eight of the most requested messages that I preach, plus my life story dramatized and unshackled. All right, John chapter 18. I hope that you folks don't take for granted what a wonderful church you have. And I think about the three pastors, uh, according to the pictures on the walls, and 75 years and still preaching the same kind of gospel. That's wonderful. And you know, a lot of sons come in and they uproot their father's foundation. Thank God. Pastor Andy has not done that. What a joy it is to be here. All right, let's stand please for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 18, beginning with verse 33. It says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nations and chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered unto the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, uh, Thou sayest that I am a king, to this end was I born, for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth, and everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Scarcely in the history of mankind has a person's life been changed by a brief conversation with someone else. But I believe it was true in the life of Pontius Pilate. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that I believe Pilate was saved, but I believe that he was never the same after this simple conversation that they had with Jesus Christ. Eusebius, a fourth century historian, says that Pilate was forced to commit suicide, becoming his own murderer and executioner. Where and how are still up for debate. One report says that he threw himself in a river near Lausanne, Switzerland. And in the center of that city is a monument that is called Pilate's Tomb. Another one says that he threw himself in the Rhone River. And there is a monument or a mountain that is named in his honor, Mount Pilatus. But I like this. One report says that he and his wife Claudia were born again. And they died a martyr's death. And the Ethiopic Christian churches venerate him as a martyr. Regardless whether or not they were saved, I believe he was never the same 
after this conversation. And in the course of the conversation, he asked the most philosophical question of the ages, three words, what is truth? And most philosophers have spent their life trying to answer Pilate's question. But most of the time, their philosophies went to the grave with them. But ladies and gentlemen, if you want to find the answer to that question, you go to the source book of all truth, the Word of God. Many years ago, I was near Dayton, Ohio in a meeting. And the pastor said, Brother Comfort, I'm going to take you to visit a Ph.D. who's a retired college professor. He said, now, you better get your guns loaded because he's an agnostic. So we went in to see the gentleman. He was very kind and very cordial. And all of a sudden, I turned the conversation. I said, sir, let me ask you a question. What is the oldest book you have in your library? He said, well, I've never thought of that. He said, probably the Harvard Classics. I said, how old are they? He said, probably 200 years old. I said, you are intelligent enough to realize that very few books outlive their author by a 100 years. And almost, without exception, very few live to 100 years be beyond their author. I said, do you know, sir, this book is over 2,000 years old, and it is more up to date today than when God Almighty first penned it through the prophets of old. And I want to say, if you want to find out what is truth, you don't go to a philosophy book, you don't go to a sociology book, you go to the Bible. Now, I'm going to mention to you three times where Jesus answered Pilate's question. Turn over a page to John chapter 17, please. John chapter 17 and verse 17. Jesus said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I hold in my hand this morning a copy of inspired truth. Psalm 12 and verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the first of the earth, purified seven times. Psalm 19 and verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119.105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, verse 130, The entrance of thy word giveth light, O Lord. It giveth understanding unto the simple. Psalm 119, verse 140, Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Psalm 119, verse 160, Thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endure forever. Proverbs 30 and verse 5, every word of God is pure, and he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Hallelujah. I am so glad that I have a copy of 
inspired truth. And long after you and I and our pea-sized brains are put in the ground, the Bible will still be in existence. It's outlived all of its critics. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted. It'll firmly stand though the hills may crumble. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation. Yes, praise God, the Bible stands. Now, listen carefully. As far as I'm concerned, one of the greatest single proofs of Bible's Lord of God is the change that takes place in a person's life when he's born again. And this is something that no skeptic can understand. No skeptic can explain it away. Here's a drunkard. Here's a whoremonger. Here's a drug addict. He comes to Christ and goes away a new creature in Jesus Christ. Psalm 34 and verse 8. Uh, it says that, uh, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. James 1.18 Of his own will begat he us through the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creature. First Peter 1.23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Romans 10 and verse 17, So then faith cometh a hearing, and hearing by the word of God. In the early 70s, I was in Richmond, Virginia for a meeting. Uh, the pastor's name was Billy Carl Rice, Fellowship Baptist Church. And the Fellowship Baptist Church was exploding with growth. They were seeing people saved every week and joining the church. So one Sunday night, uh, Pastor Rice got his people together, or his men, his deacons, and he said, now men, he said, we've got to build. If we don't build, we're going to stymie our growth all of our existence they said, Preacher, you're right. And they said, why don't we buy up some property adjoining the church and just build where we are? He said, now men, think about that. He said, this community is going down. And he said, there'll be a time when women will not want to come in this community by themselves at night. He said, I don't think we'll build here. He said, let me tell you what God's laid on my heart. So he took them to a map of Richmond, Virginia. Early 70s, one of the main roads was Laburnum Avenue, a four-lane highway. Many of the commercial buildings were building there. He said, now, men, there are 10 acres right here on Laburnum Avenue. And God's laid on my heart to inquire about that 10 acres. They laughed. They said, Pastor, you don't know what you're saying. He said, you know who owns that property? A girl, an old God-hater by the name of Mr. Adams. He's living with a woman in adultery. He's a blasphemer. He's a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He'll never sell us 10 acres of the property. He said, pray for me. I'm going to go see him tomorrow. So, he went to see Mr. Adams, introduced himself. I'm Pastor Billy Carl Rice, Pastor of Fellowship Baptist Church. He said, uh, Mr. Adams, uh, our church is exploding. We're seeing people saved added to the church every week. And he said, we've got a bill. He said, God has laid on my heart 10 acres of your property here on the Burnham Avenue. He said, now, how much will you sell that to us for? 
he laughed. He said, Preacher, you have no idea what you're saying. He said, I was just offered early 70s, $60,000 for 200 square feet. He said, I turned it down. I can get a whole lot more out of it than that. He said, you don't have enough money. Nobody in your church has enough money to buy 10 acres of my property. And the preacher said, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to pray about this. And I'm going to come back on Friday and get your final answer. He said, preacher, you're wasting your time. You've already had my final answer. He said, I'll see you on Friday. Well, the preacher came back. He said, I prayed about this all week. And I am more convinced than ever that God wants us to buy 10 acres of your property here on Liberta Avenue. Now, how much are you going to sell it to us for? He said, preacher, didn't I tell you you didn't have enough money? Nobody in your church has enough money to buy 10 acres of my property. He said, the only way you can get 10 acres of my property is for me to give it to you. He said, preacher, I'm giving you 10 acres of my property here on the Murdom Avenue. You know what happened? The old reprobate got saved. The woman he was living with got saved. They got married. They joined Fellowship Baptist Church. He would send tracts all over Richmond to black folks. Some of them would get them and say, we don't understand. We thought Mr. Adams hated black folks. Some of them know what happened. They say, well, you know, he's not the same Mr. Adams anymore. He's been born again. When I preached a week of meetings in that church, the Adams were members of that church. And when I would pause to take a breath, which wasn't very often, he would let out with a hallelujah, praise God. Hallelujah, praise God. What can do that for a person? Only the Bible, because it is the Word of God. Number one, the Bible is inspired truth. Now, go forward to John Chapter 16, please. John chapter 16, or or 14. Let's go to 14 verse. The Bible is inspired truth. The Holy Spirit is indwelling truth. John 14, 16, and 17. Jesus said, and I will pray the Father that he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not neither knoweth him. But ye know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Again, John 16 and verse 13. How be it when he the spirit of truth is come. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. First John 5 and verse 6. This is he that came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit that bears witness because the Spirit is truth. The Bible is inspired truth. The Holy Spirit is indwelling truth. Now here's an interesting thing. Whenever in the Bible you have the word of truth, it is usually accompanied by the spirit of truth. Did you know that? For instance, Genesis 1 and verse 3. 
And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Genesis 1 and verse 4. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. So there you have the word of truth being accompanied by the spirit of truth. You go into the tabernacle in the Old Testament. In the outer court, you will see the brazen laver. The water inside the laver is a picture of the word of God. The laver is a picture of the Holy Spirit. You remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, John 3 and verse 5, except a man be born of the water, the word of God, and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the two agents in salvation are the word of truth and the spirit of truth. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen carefully. When you leave this auditorium this morning, you will have done one of two things to the spirit of truth. You will either have received him or you will have resisted him. Acts 7 and verse 51, as Stephen was being stoned, he said, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so also do ye. Second Timothy 3 and verse 8, Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, resisting the truth. I want to say it is a dangerous thing to sit in a service like this and have the Spirit of God speak to your heart and you say no, no, no. Resisting the Holy Spirit. An evangelist of years gone by, Hyman Appleman, was confronted by an older gentleman. He said, Mr. Appleman, when I was a young man, I heard you preach. And he said, as you preached, I was under grave conviction. When the invitation was given, I grabbed the hold of the pews and my knuckles turned white with the pressure. He said, beads of perspiration broke out on my brow. He said, I wanted to go get saved so badly that night, but I did not go. He said, you know what? I'm not afraid of you or your blankety-blank God anymore resisting the truth. I have in my library a book entitled Sayings of Dying Saints and Dying Sinners. And I read about D.L. Moody as he was on his deathbed. His son was standing beside of his bed. D.L. Moody looked up and he said, Earth recedes, heaven opens before me. He said, is this death? Why, there's no valley here. His son said, Dad, keep quiet. You've been dreaming. He said, Son, I haven't been dreaming. He said, I've already been within the gates of heaven. I've already seen the smile on my grandchildren's faces who are in heaven. He said, This is my coronation day. This is triumph. This is glory. That's receiving the spirit of truth. All right, but on the other hand, in that book I read about a young lady by the name of Jenny Gordon. She had attended a revival meeting that was going to be for two weeks. But on Friday night, the second Friday night, 
a group of hoodlums from the community got up a dance to try to break up the revival meeting and the revival spirit that was prevalent. Well, about a month later, Jenny Gordon was on her deathbed. Her preacher was standing beside of her bed. She said, Preacher, don't talk to me about getting saved. She said, I would rather go to hell than to go to heaven. She said, oh, how I hate God. If I could only get away from him, but why must he always be looking upon me? He said, she said, now leave and don't bother to pray for me. I don't want to be tormented by the sound of your prayers. He said, I'll, she said, I'll call for you later on. When it turned four o'clock, she asked her attendant what time it was. When told it was four o'clock, she said, oh my, how slowly the hours drag on. This day seems an age. How will I ever endure eternity? At seven o'clock, she called for the preacher to come back. She said, now preacher, I want you to stand over my casket and tell my friends about my dying moments. He said, Jenny, I can't do that. He said, I'd much rather stand over your casket and tell your friends that in your dying moments, you receive Christ. He said, stop it. Stop it. My fate is eternally fixed. I'm now suffering the agonies of the damned. The worms, they come, they tie me down. Lost, 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 she whispered as she struggled in the agonies of death. Jenny Gordon's head lie on her pillow, a lifeless form, given up by God for all eternity. I beg of you, please don't resist the Holy Spirit. Number one, the Bible is inspired truth. Number two, the Holy Spirit is indwelling truth. Now take your Bible and go to John chapter 14, please. And you guessed it. Jesus is incarnate truth. Notice John chapter 14 and verse six. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Look this way. Folks, that is the most narrow dogmatic statement that has ever been made on planet earth. Jesus did not say, I am a way. He said, I'm the only way. If you get to heaven, you're going to have to go through me. If you try to go any other way, you're a thief and you're a liar. Again, Acts 4 and verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name given under heaven among men, whereby we must be saved. First Timothy 2 and verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Several years ago, when I was still president of Ambassador, I started in 1989. I was president for 20 years. But uh, my wife, one Father's Day, gave me a book on the life of Ronald Reagan, uh, a tremendous book uh, by uh, De, De Sousa, uh 
and it's a great book. It's an ordinary man who became an extraordinary leader. When she gave me the book, I thought, now I've got so much on my uh, uh, plate. I, I don't have time to read a book like this, but I read it. And Pastor, I'm glad I did. It was a manual on leadership. And I just finished another book on Ronald Reagan. I imagine I've read eight or nine books on the life of Ronald Reagan. But in that book by D'Souza, he says that a, a Methodist preacher wrote him a letter. And uh, in that letter, the Methodist preacher said, Mr. President, I understand that you believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He said, I personally don't. I believe he was a good man. But I don't believe he was the Son of God. Reagan wrote him back in his own hand. And he said, Pastor, you have said that Jesus was a good man, but he was not the Son of God. He said, that's a contradiction. He said, your alternative is either he was the Son of God who he claimed to be, or he was the greatest imposter that planet Earth has ever known. No man ever made the claims for himself that Jesus made. And he said, I personally have decided to receive him as my Lord and Savior. Ladies and gentlemen, he is not a way to heaven. He is the only way. If you get to heaven, you're going to have to go through Jesus Christ. He proved that he was truth incarnate in three ways in closing. He proved it in his life. In Matthew 8, in verse 26, he's on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. Now, a pastor knows this. How many times have you been to Israel? Eight times. Uh, you go to the Sea of Galilee, and you better not go across the Sea of Galilee in the afternoon, right? I remember one time we were there. I've been five times. But one time we were there, and the boisterous waves came up. And the guide said, now listen, in order to go across the Sea of Galilee, you've got to go early in the morning or late at night. But in the afternoon, these boisterous waves, sometimes 20, 30 feet high, will arise. And he said, we would jeopardize your lives if we took you across now. The Sea of Galilee was 8 miles wide, 13 miles long. In some places, it's 150 feet deep. And so... Here they were on the boat and the boisterous waves came up. And Jesus was asleep in the boat. The disciples pushed the panic button and they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, wake up, wake up. The thing they didn't understand was nobody ever died in the presence of Jesus Christ. He broke up funeral processions. You remember what Mary and Martha said? If you had been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. And so nobody ever died in the presence of Jesus, but he stood up on the boat and he held out his hand and he said, Peace! Be still! And those angry waves licked his hands like they were little poodle puppies. And the disciples said, What manner of man is this? that even the winds and the waves obey his voice. He proved he was truth incarnate, ladies and gentlemen, by his life. He proved it in his death. Come with me to the Garden of Gethsemane early in the morning. Now remember, Jesus had had nothing to eat since the Last Supper. 
His eyes had not been closed in sleep all night long. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the little capillaries underneath his skin exploded. And out of the pores of his skin came great drops of blood. I am told that three times in the annals of medical history, it says that anybody sweat drops of blood. And on each occasion, that person died of a broken heart. You know what Weber and Rice say in their blasphemous rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar? They say that when Jesus was in the garden, he looked up to heaven and he said, Now God, you tell me a lot about the hows and the whats, but you don't tell me much about the whys. Why am I having to go to the cross? Are you listening? That was not Jesus Christ. He knew what he came to do, ladies and gentlemen. And it is my contention that the devil tried to kill Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His heart was breaking. And I believe he, in essence, said, Father, if it be possible, don't let me die in the garden, but let me go to the cross and fulfill the word of God. So they came early in the morning to apprehend Christ. They took him across the Tyropian Valley to Caiaphas's hall, and then over to Pilate's hall, and then down to Herod's hall, and back up to Pilate's hall. By this time, he'd already walked about six miles. He was already a time of physical exhaustion. And so as Pilate examined Jesus, he said, there's no reason to put this man to death. Why don't we put Barabbas to death and let Jesus go free? But the more they cried out, Crucify him! We'll not have this man to reign over us. So Pilate got an idea. He thought if the crowd saw blood, they'd be satisfied. So he ordered Jesus to be brought forward and stripped of his garment. Ladies and gentlemen, at best... He had a little loincloth. And so uh, that day there were two types of scourging. Number one, there was Jewish scourging. In Jewish scourging, they would take a man's hands, tie them to a ring, and let his body dangle. They would beat him 13 times on the right side, 13 times in the center, 13 times on the left side. Jewish law forbade anybody to be beaten more than 40 stripes. So they always stopped at 39 to be within the law. But I want to remind you that at Pilate's Hall, Jesus was not scourged by Jewish scourging. He was scourged by Roman scourging. That's much more cruel. You know how they did that? They tied his hands through a ring. They tied his legs through a ring so his body was spread eagle. They took the leaded with the cat of nine tails. You know what that was? Nine strands of leather. And on the end of every uh, strand of leather was a place for three to four inch piece of bone, glass, or metal. And every lash in the victim's body ripped nine strands of skin from his body. You know what that means? If they beat him five times, they ripped 45 strands of skin from his body. Five times nine is 45. And Roman law said, scourge him as many times as you desire. And many times it was over a hundred times until they thought the person was almost dead. They would let him sink to the ground. 
let his entire body convulse so his last moments would be moments of agony. So they brought Jesus Christ forward, stripped him of his garment, and they brought the whip down. One, two, three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine, forty, and only God knows how many more times until his entire body was riveted, emaciated flesh. See him in your mind as he sinks to the ground. They came to Christ with a 160 pound cross piece. Not the entire cross, just the cross piece. They slammed it on his riveted body and now he's to go another half a mile to Golgotha's brow. Roman law said this, don't let the victim fall beneath the cross. Why? The greatest time of his agony was to be reserved for just before he died. They would come to him with a large hammer or mallet and break his bones to cause internal bleeding. That was the epitome of agony. Nothing was to supersede that. And the law said if a soldier lets a victim fall beneath the cross, he's punishable by the law. So in my mind, I can see Jesus as he staggers from side to side. They go in the crowd and they get a black man, Simon the Cyrene, and they say, help him carry his cross. So they take him to Golgotha's brow. They pound the ten-inch spikes through the heel of the hand, separating the bones. Not a bone of him was broken. They lapped over his feet. They pounded the ten-inch spike through the heel of the foot, fulfilling Genesis 3.15. They took this mammoth 250-pound cross with a thud, slammed it into the pit. And as they slammed it into the pit, the flesh ripped from every wound of Jesus Christ. I had a nurse tell me, Brother Comfort, when they slammed Jesus into the pit that day, his inside separated from his rib cage. In order for Jesus Christ to breathe on the cross, he had to pull himself upward so his internal organs would permit him to breathe. And you know what Psalm 22, 16 through 18 says? All of his bones were out of joint. The bones came through his body and they stared upon him. Listen. There was a centurion that stood by his cross. He heard the seven last sayings. He witnessed the darkness of three hours over the land. He witnessed the earthquake. And finally he decided, Matthew 27, 53, truly this was the Son of God. He proved it in his life. He proved it in his death. And praise God, he proved it in his resurrection. Romans 1 and verse 4 and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans 4 and verse 25 who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. In 1991 I stood in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, China. And here supposedly in this casket 
was the body of Mao Zedong. They thought Mao would never die. They thought he was immortal. They wrote of Mao whenever he walked by the waters, the waters hummed a tune. The birds were happy and the children sang, but there were his remains. I stood in 1975 in Red Square in Moscow, and in the blizzard-like weather, there was a mile-long line of people just waiting to go by the body in a glass enclosure of linen. Ladies and gentlemen, there were his remains. They thought he'd never die. But five times I've stood in that open tomb in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit says he's not here, he's risen. And because he arose, one day ever child of God is going to arise in his likeness. What are you going to do with truth this morning? The Bible is inspired truth. The Holy Spirit is indwelling truth. And thank God Jesus is incarnate truth. Let's bow our heads in prayer.